If you could go back in church history and hear anyone preach live and in person, who would you choose? If you could get in a time machine and go back and listen to anyone, who would you choose? That is the question because there are lots and lots of good options out there. For instance, you could choose Patrick, missionary to Ireland. Listen him preach the gospel to Irish savages. That'd be interesting. Or there's Chrysostom, 4th century, whose preaching was so skilled and so eloquent that they literally called him the golden mouth. There's Augustine, 5th century, who preached his sermons with the beauty of a poet. Luther preached his sermons with the power of a freight train. Calvin of Geneva preached his sermons with the precision of a laser. The question is, who would you go back and listen to if you could listen to anyone in church history preach? And we can't forget Jonathan Edwards, can we? Who, apart from Christ and the apostles, preached the greatest sermon in church history, probably, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is incredible. We'd be remiss if we didn't include Charles Spurgeon in the conversation, who is famously known as the Prince of preachers, who would you go back and listen to? And to the purists out there, I know you are out there, you say, well, those guys are fine, those guys are great, but if we're going to listen to anyone in church history preach, I'm going to go back and listen to Christ. She would just say, agreed, 100%, absolutely. You're going to go through the trouble of traveling through time and listen to anyone preach, it might as well be Christ himself. And yet here's the thing about that. While every sermon of Christ is the greatest ever in history, there is one sermon in particular that is especially pertinent to Resurrection Sunday. And it is the sermon he preached to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he rose from the dead. You remember the scene? Freshly resurrected from the tomb, in a glorified body, he preached the prophecies of himself from the Old Testament to these two disciples who had lost all hope that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And that sermon that he preached was so electric, so powerful in its effects that these two men declared that their heart burned within them as he unfolded to them the scriptures. And my question is, what would it be like to hear that sermon preached? Well, guess what? We don't have to imagine what that was like because today we are going to hear that very sermon that he preached. Not an audio clip, of course. Not a transcript of the sermon necessarily. But we're going to see the prophecies that Christ preached that portrayed his arrival centuries before he ever even showed up to the planet. And again, the thing, about, the thing about that sermon that makes it so significant is that he preached it after he rose from the dead. Beloved, think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and then blew it up from the inside. 
He gave himself into the jaws of death. And he lived again to tell the tale. Jesus Christ is the living expositor. He is the resurrected preacher. And when he emerged out of the tomb, he did so not as a zombie, not bleeding and in critical condition, but as a warrior and a king and a preacher who rose from the grave just as if he had never died in the first place because that right there, beloved, is what Resurrection Sunday is all about. In fact, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because we gather in the name of the risen King who when he arrives to build his kingdom will put death to death and reign forever. And if you belong to him by faith, you will be there to enjoy this. So here we go, beloved, historically verified. I witness testimonies of the greatest miracle in human history, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the scene you're about to see is split in two. One scene takes place at a cemetery, the other on a sun-baked desert road. One scene has women, the other scene has men. The ones were confused, the others were clueless. One scene features an empty grave, the other scene features the one who resurrected from that grave. And believe it or not, both scenes declare the infinite importance of the word of God and what God has spoken and revealed. And church, I, I just can't overemphasize enough to you how big of a deal the resurrection really is. How earth-shatteringly significant the resurrection really is. Because if this is true, it changes everything. And it is true, and it does change everything. All the hope and the joy and the power that you need for everything in your lives is literally bound up in a Jerusalem grave that has no bones. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see two scenes, two scenes of the risen king to make your heart burn with love and zeal to live for his glory. That's where we're going. Two scenes of the risen king to make your heart burn with love and zeal to live for his glory. Scene number one. Scene number one, which I'm calling the empty tomb and the baffled disciples. The empty tomb and the baffled disciples, because today is Sunday. Today is Sunday, and it's been an interesting week, to say the least. And when you put the Gospels together, you can see day by day exactly what went down. First, there was the hysteria of the triumphal entry two Fridays ago. As Christ comes into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Here he is. The king has come. The moment has arrived. Finally, the kingdom is here. And yet, and yet the rest of the week didn't quite play out the way the disciples imagined, did it? Because according to Matthew, the first thing he did was go up to Jerusalem, go up to the temple, and for the second time in three years, cleanse the temple. Yes, he did it twice, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end. He drove out the crooks and the thieves and the money changers, ripping people off. 
And then there was a series of increasingly heated showdowns with the Pharisees until on Thursday night with one last emotional meal with his disciples, he lifted the bread, tore it apart, and said, this is my body given, broken for you. And then he lifted the cup, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And the disciples, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, is this guy going to take hold of his kingdom or is he not? But then the unthinkable. After dinner, they take a walk to a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Only to be greeted by Judas and a crowd of thugs with their torches and pitchforks ready to arrest Christ, which they do. And then after a bogus trial, a sleepless night, an all-night escapade of torture and nearly being beaten within an inch of his life. The bloodthirsty crowds cry out for the crucifixion of the very one a week ago. They hailed as their king, and they did it. They killed him. They impaled him on a Roman torture device, and with that last nail pounded into his bloody flesh, when all their dreams and hopes of a kingdom and redemption. Souls of the disciples ripped and torn apart. They fled the scene like quivering little animals hiding in their homes, frozen with fear and paralyzed with despair. What were we thinking? What were we thinking? That, that is not the Messiah. That is not the one we were waiting for. Shut the door. Turn out the lights. This party's over. That was Friday. Today is Sunday. I said, today is Sunday. And just like people today bring flowers to the grave to pay their respects, a group of faithful women go to the grave Women who fought, loved and followed Christ, they woke up early Sunday morning to visit the tomb. Verse 10 tells us exactly who they were. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and other women, and they go to the tomb. And yet what they found, what they got there was the whiplash of a lifetime. Look at verses 1 and 2. And by the first of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared, but they found the stone having been rolled away from the tomb. Well, that's very interesting. More alarming than coming home to find your front door wide open. These women come to the cemetery to find the door of the tomb wide open. It had been guarded. The, 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 the stone was heavy, but nevertheless, there it is, ajar and moved aside. And you could tell from the spices in their hands that the only thing they were expecting to find that morning was a corpse. Because in that day, that's what loved ones did. They anointed the body with spices and perfume. And the fact that they showed up with spices certainly indicates their love and affection to be sure, but also their lack of faith. In verse 3, they walk into the tomb. And the thing that they expected to see, they did not see, namely the body of the Lord Jesus. In verse 4, they don't know what to make of this. The text literally says that they were at a loss about this. No explanation. 
In a split second, a thousand possibilities of what it could be, and yet none of it was the right explanation. And so someone had to come along and give them the right explanation. Look at verses 4 and 5. And it was while they were at a loss concerning this, then behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Think about this. They are staring into the empty tomb, mouths open in baffled silence, and suddenly two men appear clothed in dazzling apparel, Luke says. Clothing as bright as lightning itself. They they show up with robes that gleam like snow in the sunlight, which means these two guys are not from around here, as in not of this realm. And when they appear, you see the women fall on their faces filled with terror because they intuitively know that these two men are, in fact, angelic beings come in the form of men. And you know that when angels show up in history, it is either good news or it is bad news. And here, although the news is good, notice they begin with a question. Look at verses 5 and 6. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not Here he is risen. That's very logical, isn't it? You don't don't go to the tombs to look for the living. You don't go to a mausoleum to find a Messiah. Cemeteries are a really stupid place to look for the Savior of the world. He is not here, they say. Why would he be? Why would he be here? The one who raised others, does he not have the power to raise himself? The one who laid down his life on his own authority, does he not have the authority to take it back again whenever he darn well pleases? He does and he did. And look, look at some of the most beautiful words ever written in human history. Verse 6, Uk estin hodde ala agerte. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. Literally, he was raised. Beloved, this is the resurrection. I know you know that, but, but this is the resurrection. And, and, and this is incredible. He is not here at the empty tomb because he has done the logically and the scientifically impossible. I mean, you understand, don't you, that this moment right here, this is literally the deal breaker of human history. Because think, think about the implications for a moment of those words so familiar to us. He is risen. What are the implications of the resurrection? Because when I was a kid, I was infatuated with David Copperfield, the illusionist and magician. Remember him? And I remember that as he physically passed through the Great Wall of China, As he made the Statue of Liberty disappear, I remember thinking that he actually did those things. That he really did have power, that he really was a magician. But he didn't actually do those things. He wasn't actually a magician. He doesn't actually have power. You see, all he was 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 an entertainer who did sleight of hand tricks. Smoke and mirrors are are the tools of his trade. This is not that. This is not that. The son of David is not an entertainer. He's not 
a magician. He is the Messiah. And he physically passed through the great wall of death. And the empty tomb is the real Statue of Liberty. He didn't appear to die. He actually died. And when he rose, it literally altered the course of history in your very lives. Why? Why does this matter? Six reasons why the resurrection is the foundation of your security and joy. Number one, the resurrection of Christ, it matters because it is the historical verification that Christianity is absolutely true. It's the verification that Christianity is true. I mean, if the resurrection is true, then everything else Christianity claims is true. I mean, people could doubt and question the resurrection all they want, but they have to explain to me the first-hand eyewitness testimony that watched him die and the first-hand eyewitness testimony that watched him be alive. Number two. The resurrection is the undeniable demonstration that Jesus Christ is everything he claimed to be, not the least of which was God. I mean, if the bones of Christ were in some Jerusalem grave somewhere, we might have cast it out that he was who he claimed to be. But you see, why the resurrection means everything is because it proved everything he did, everything he said. This is not just a man, this is God, the God who became man for us and for our salvation. Number three, the empty grave on Sunday morning is the verification that the death of Christ for sinners actually did something. That it actually did something. You understand, this was not a martyrdom. This was an atonement. I mean, you understand, the death of Christ is not good News, unless, unless he defies the laws of science, raises from the dead, claims his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, where there he intercedes for us, and that is exactly what happens. Number four, the resurrection of Christ is the proof and evidence that Jesus Christ is the source of life and the cure for death. He is the source of life and the cure for death. The cure for death. I mean, think about it. He blew up death from the inside. And what that is, is the guarantee that those of us attached to him by faith, death is not the end for us. Don't you see, Christ already defanged the power of death. It has no bite. It has no teeth. It has no sting. Death is not the end for us. And the implications of that are staggering and profound, aren't they? Because what it literally means is that how you die and when you die is irrelevant. Think about that. How you die and when you die is irrelevant. It's meaningless. Either way, when Christ arrives, he will call you by name and all the rotted, decomposed bits and crumbs that used to be you will be supernaturally reassembled and you will rise from the grave just as if you had never died in the first place. 
Number five, the boneless tomb in the Middle East is what gives us the power to finish the Great Commission, to proclaim the gospel to lost people. Does it not? I mean, what do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? We are a resurrection people who have a resurrection hope, who belong to a resurrected king, who one day ourselves will resurrect and enter into the kingdom. We fear not those who can only kill the body. And you understand what this does is give us the courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture, knowing that no matter what they do to put an end to us, we will rise triumphant again, number six. The words, he is risen, are the essence of practical. These are the essence of practical. The resurrection, believe it or not, kills sins like anger and anxiety and fear and despair and even depression. You know why? Because the resurrection is the proof. I know this sounds trite, but the resurrection is the proof that everything in your lives is going to be okay. We get angry, we get anxious, we get fearful, we get depressed because we forget the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. And what God is doing in the world is unfolding a plan that has a resurrection at the ending. It's going to turn out perfectly. And what that means is that everything in your lives leading up to your death is also under his sovereign dominion. That, that is the foundation of our security and joy. What are you even doing here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a good question. And these ladies needed to be reminded that an empty tomb should not come as a surprise to them. I mean, Christ told them that this very thing was going to happen. Look at verses 6 and 7. He's not here, they say. He, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and by the third day to be raised. Ladies, you knew this. He said for weeks and for months, way back in Galilee, do you remember? That he would give himself into the clutches of his killers. Because again, notice, notice the language. The angel said that he, the Son of Man, had to be delivered. He had to be delivered. This had to happen. This needed to happen. It was necessary. He had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men to save the souls of sinful men. There are no workarounds here. There are no shortcuts to the kingdom here. He had to go to a bloody cross to take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. But notice, notice very carefully, don't miss the details. There's glory in the details. Notice the, carefully the title that these angels attribute to Christ. They call him the Son of Man. The Son of Man had to suffer. Son of Man, meaning what? Well, you hear the echoes of Genesis, don't you? You hear the echoes of the garden. Think about it. There was the first man. Now here is the son of man. The son of man comes to fix what the first man ruined. 
The Son of Man undoes what the first man did. And according to Daniel 7, the Son of Man will come again and build a global kingdom and be worshipped by the nations. He had to come. He had to die. He had to be raised. And the women realize, verse 8, oh yeah, that's true. He did say that, didn't he? So verse 9, they do the only thing that was logical to do. They had to go back and tell the rest of the disciples, which is what they do. And John 20 tells us that the disciples were still huddled together in the upper room, depressed and licking their wounds at this rented Airbnb, trying to figure out what to do with their lives now, now that their hopes have been dashed against the rocks. And then all of a sudden, in verse 11, at 1,000 RPMs, the ladies burst through the door, and they tell them everything that they saw, everything that they heard. And notice the text says, they did not believe them. And why would they? Because that's nonsense. The text says that it sounded like nonsense to them. And it is nonsense. People don't come back from the dead. That is crazy. That is ludicrous. That is insane. And yet there is hope, isn't there? There was the slight shred of hope that maybe this could be true. Because notice, notice in the text, Peter stands up. And it says he ran. He ran to the tomb. John says that both he and Peter both ran to the tomb. And when Peter got there, he stooped and he looked into the mausoleum. And notice what it says. Verse 12, all he saw were the grave clothes alone. Not exactly the same as a resurrection, but it is a clue, isn't it? I mean, if someone stole the corpse and went through the gruesome and fairly, and to be honest, gross deed of unraveling the body. And even John 20 says that the grave clothes were wrapped and folded neatly on the bench. Well, then clearly these people were not in a hurry. That doesn't make sense, though. Right? A, a grave robber and a tomb raider doesn't make sense. Thieves, when they break into your car, do not put things back the way they found them. It's not a sufficient explanation. Peter knows that the Roman guards are gone. That's weird. The seal on the tomb is broken. That's weirder. The ladies talk of a vision of angels, that angels spoke to them. That's weirdest of all. And yet most bizarre, most bizarre is a tomb with no body, with no signs of foul play or criminal activity. And verse 12 simply says that Peter left the tomb marveling at what had happened. Not faith by any means, but soon it would be. Beloved, here's my question for you. My question for you is, for those of you who belong to Christ, my question for you is, have you grappled with this? Have you grappled, truly grappled with the empty tomb? What I mean is, do you see the implications, the practical implications of the resurrection playing out in your life? And I guess I'll just level with you and tell you what I'm really thinking. My question is, do you fear death? Do you fear death? I mean, don't get me wrong, no one wants to die. We want to live God made us to want to live. We're not, we're not masochists, right? We're not a bunch of morbid sickos, but you know that the last few years have tested people in ways that, is, that has revealed a fear about them that shows that they do not actually believe in the resurrection. 
The point is, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of your own resurrection. And what that does is give us the courage, the courage to stare our mortality right in the face and have our faith remain unshaken. To do what Christ calls us to do as a church, no matter what happens to us or what kills us. We will rise from the dead just as if we had never died in the first place. To the unbelievers in this room, to the unbelievers, if you're not a believer, if you don't belong to Jesus Christ this morning, my question for you is exactly the same. Have you grappled with this? Have you grappled with the empty tomb? Because the significance of that boneless grave in Jerusalem is that Jesus Christ is not only alive, but that he rules the entire universe. You understand that, right? The same one who went up to heaven to rule all things will come down to earth to rule all things. And I just want you to know that if you have a pulse this morning, it is not too late. It is not too late to take hold of the eternal life that he bought with his blood. The Son of Man had to be crucified so that sinners like you and me could have forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to God. That is why the resurrection matters, because he offers life and he offers life to you. Scene number two. Scene number two, which I call the Emmaus Road and the Burning Disciples. The Emmaus Road and the Burning Disciples. Because you understand, you understand, don't you, that not everyone could stick around in Jerusalem indefinitely. Right? The followers of Christ had their lives to live, their jobs to do, their families to support and raise. And since their hopes were dashed against the rocks, there was nothing left for them to do but go back home. Scene two, it's exactly what that is. Look at verses 13 and 14. And behold, two of them in that very day were proceeding to a village being about seven miles from Jerusalem by the name of Emmaus. And they themselves were discussing with one another concerning all these things which had happened. Notice carefully, Luke tells us in verse 13 that two of them are traveling to Emmaus. Who's the them? Who, who are the they? Well, these are disciples. Not among the 11 disciples, but part of a larger group of 100 or so people or more who stuck it out with Christ to the very end. These two guys are a part of that group. And notice they are moving on with their lives. There's nothing more to see here. The game is over, at least that's what it looked like on the surface. And these guys are headed home to Emmaus, a suburb of Jerusalem, about seven miles away. And the thing about that's an interesting detail. The thing about that is that it takes roughly two hours and 20 minutes to do the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Two hours and 20 minutes, duly noted. And just like the only thing that people could talk about after 9-11 was 9-11, these two guys are discussing the events of the week. The headline news, which is the murder and execution of Jesus the Nazarene, the one that they had temporarily given their lives to follow. And the plot thickens in verses 15 and 16. There's this, this major freeway from Jerusalem to Emmaus. 
And as these men walked and talked and discussed and, and debated with one another the news of the week's events, someone catches up to them and eavesdrop on the conversation. Look at verses 15 and 16. And it was while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself also, after coming near, was going along with them. But their eyes were being hindered so that they could not recognize him. Interesting. These two guys discussing, debating, the text says debating the tragic events of the weekend. And the stranger comes along and we know it's Christ because Luke tells us that it is. We know this is the risen king fresh from the tomb, but notice the commentary there in verse 16. Their eyes were being hindered so that they could not recognize him. I mean, you know what that is, right? I mean, that, that is foreshadowing and that is sovereignty. Foreshadowing and sovereignty. Sovereignty, I mean, God sovereignly blinded their eyes. He did not let them recognize who he was. I mean, these guys weren't idiots. They knew what he looked like. They spent time in the room with him. They were his, they, they were his disciples for crying out loud. They knew what he looked like. But God blinded their eyes from seeing. Why? Because he wanted them to see. To really see who Christ was. From the pages of Holy Scripture, which is exactly what's about to happen. But second, I call this foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, what I mean is, is Luke is leaving an Easter egg, no pun intended. To look for the moment in the text when their eyes would be opened. Because here's the thing, when their eyes were finally opened and how their eyes were opened is the very point of the text. And so there's this stranger on the road to Emmaus, eavesdropping and listening in, and notice that he does that super annoying thing that you should never ever do to people in public that you don't know, he interrupts and helps himself to their conversation. Look at verse 17. He said, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you walk? Because no question, the story was juicy. I mean, this was a, re this was a real winner here. Double cross, betrayal, conspiracy, murder, Bribes, talk of bribes, public execution, rumors of grave tampering, angelic visitations. I mean, this is pretty dramatic stuff. This is as good as it gets. And as if Christ didn't know the details, he asks for the details. And notice how they respond. It says they stood there looking solemn, looking sullen, downcast, sad. Think about that for a moment. They were so brokenhearted, they could not even walk and talk at the same time. And one of the disciples named Cleopas, not out of anger, but amazement, asks him in verse 18, are, are you the only one dwelling, visiting Jerusalem, and you do not know the things which have happened in our day? I mean, imagine three days after the Twin Towers fell, people, hey, so what's, what happened here? How, how do you live here and you do not know what has happened? What, what cave do you live in? That's so Christ asked him, well, what things? Fill in the blanks, tell me. And they do, verses 19 and 20. And they said to him the things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, 
A man who was a mighty prophet in word, in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him over to the judgment of death. And they crucified him. And that was basically it. That's basically right. He was from Nazareth. That's true. He was a man. That's true. He was a mighty prophet in deed and word. That is true. And the chief priests and rulers did conspire together to get him crucified and killed. All of that is true. Those are the basic facts of the case. And yet, notice what is missing. Lord Christ, Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, Light of the world, the bread of life, predicting his own resurrection beforehand, which means they thought, get a load of this, they thought he was only a man. He was just a prophet. At the end of the day, he was nothing more than a martyr who died for a good cause, and now it seems for a lost and hopeless cause. And understandably, you can hear the disappointment in their voice and and that what happened to him was nowhere near their expectations. Look at verse 21. But we, literally, we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. They thought he was the Messiah. Every sign seemed to indicate that this is the one that they should be waiting for. Because here's the thing. The prophets say, and these men were right in their interpretation of the prophets. They were right in their interpretation. The prophets say that God would send a redeemer and a king and a Messiah to fulfill every promise he ever made to the people of Israel, which would culminate in a kingdom over the whole world. Christ would be seated on a throne and be worshipped by the nations. Here's the thing, they were not wrong in their theology, but they were bad readers, selective readers. At the end of verse 21, they kind of just throw up their hands and say, besides all this, it's been three days. It's been three days, which is an interesting comment to make, isn't it? Sort of like when you're looking for your glasses around the house. They're on your face the whole time. That's what this moment is. They mention the three days not because they're thinking resurrection, but because the situation's hopeless. He's been gone for three days. Game is over, man. We're going home. And yet the glasses are on their face. Just saying The words, it's been three days, should have triggered in their minds that the game is categorically not over. Jesus made it plain a year ago, even from the very beginning of his ministry, that a death and resurrection were in the cards for Christ. And yet we don't fault them too harshly, do we? Because it's not every day that a man rises from the tomb. And yet, if you you notice, if you look carefully, they're not completely without hope, are they? They're not completely without hope. Discouraged, to be sure. Sinfully lacking faith, absolutely. But beneath the cold 
ashes of shattered expectations or a few glowing embers that maybe all is not lost, that maybe in the billion to one chance of winning the lottery, that maybe there is hope. Look at verses 22 and 23. They tell him, even some of the women who were with us astonished us. After going early to the tomb, and they did not find his body, they came speaking even to have received a vision of angels who said that he is alive. Okay, go on. And they departed, and some of those who were with us departed to the tomb, verse 24, and they found it even as the women had said, but him they did not see. And again, they're still not necessarily thinking resurrection. I mean, they're intrigued, to be sure. They're confused out of their minds, absolutely. But they're not assuming with any probable cause that a resurrection actually took place because that is biologically, that is statistically, and that is scientifically impossible. Or is it? Or is it? Because if it looks like a duck, and it talks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And if there's an empty tomb and 2,000 years of prophecy about a Messiah who's going to win it all in the end, it's probably a resurrection. That's exactly where the stranger goes. Look at verses 25 and 26. And he himself, Christ himself, said to them, Oh, foolish men! And slow in heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and then and then and then to enter into his glory? You fools. What are you doing? What are you thinking? You ran the red lights of the prophets. You missed the signs. You totally missed the memo that Christ, here it is again, had to suffer first and then to enter into his glory. Because first comes the gore, then comes the glory. First he needed to be killed, then would come the kingdom. First he needed to be slaughtered, then comes the supremacy. And notice, notice very carefully, don't, don't miss this. Notice the profound premium that Christ just placed upon the scriptures. Because notice, he doesn't wag his finger in their face for not believing the words of the women. He doesn't scold them because the empty tomb didn't persuade them. He doesn't even berate them for not believing his own words before he was killed. No, no, he, rather, he lovingly reprimands these men because of why? Because they did not believe who? Say it again. They did not believe the prophets. They didn't believe the word. That was the issue. They didn't believe the scriptures. Don't you see God's word is the issue? What God has spoken in the sacred text, that is the issue. Put it this way. Listen very carefully. What God has spoken and revealed in his word 
is all the evidence we need for everything we believe. It is its own authority, self-authenticating authority. My question for you is, listen carefully, my question for you is, in what areas of your life are you possibly foolish and slow in heart to believe? Is there something that God has revealed in his word where you live as though it isn't actually true? Because beloved, when you wake up in the morning and you get your Bible between your two elbows, your two most urgent prayers should be, one, Christ, show me who you are from the text, and two, help me now to live as though everything I just saw is true. Because it is true, and it changes everything. These men, these men like us, they needed a little help. They needed a reminder of what God had spoken in his son. Because hear this, hear this. Seeing the beauty and glory of Christ from the sacred text is what we need for every issue of our lives. Do you believe that? Seeing the beauty and glory of Christ from the text is what you and I need for every single issue of our lives. And that's exactly what Christ does. Look at verse 27. What he does is absolutely astonishing. And after beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he explained to them, literally interpreted for them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's what they needed. That's what they needed. What their faith needed was a sermon. Get this, even more than they needed to see a resurrected Christ with their own eyes. They needed a sermon. They needed to see in the sacred text, they needed to see the glory of Christ from the pages of Scripture because at the end of the day, our faith is not grounded in our feelings or our private experiences, but what God has spoken and revealed. And so what Christ did on that day, on the road to Emmaus, was preach. Two hours and 20 minute sermon. And that's exactly what I'm going to do for you for the next two hours <laughs> and 20 minutes. Cancel your lunch plans. I won't do that, but I will give you a sermon, a sample size sermon of that what Christ did from Moses and the prophets, and may, when we're done, may our hearts burn with zeal and love to live for his glory. Here is a sample of that sermon. No doubt Christ began at the beginning. Because all good stories begin at the beginning. After creation, no doubt Christ brought them to the garden, to the first marriage between Adam and Eve, which is, of course, a parable of Christ and the church. Christ is there in the text. 
But then he takes him to the fall, the tragic moment of the virus of sin released into the world when the entirety of the human race hung in the balance. But of course, he takes them there in Genesis 3, the very same chapter where paradise was lost, paradise regained is also guaranteed. Because in chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that, the human, that from the human race would emerge a savior, a hero, a champion, a redeemer. One who would solve the dilemma of sin by crushing the head of the serpent. Here he is. He is in the text. And then for the rest of human history, the Jews are looking and waiting for the great serpent crusher. And he appears centuries later in Genesis 49 in a prophecy. Described as a lion from the tribe of Judah. That's interesting. And the king whom all the nations of the world would obey. And he appears a thousand times in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, graphically bloody foreshadowing. And Passover lambs slain, sacrifices for sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. He appears again in Numbers 24, 17. Listen to this. A star come forth. A scepter will arise and crush through the foreheads of his enemies. We get a glimpse of him in Deuteronomy 18. Of a great prophet to come whose words are so serious and so significant that depending on what you do with his words determines where you will spend eternity. And then he appears in 2 Samuel 7, perhaps one of the, easily one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. He's revealed as a great king to come from the line of David who would rule forever and have an everlasting kingdom. He's there in the text. And then the Psalms, the Psalms. Psalm 2, he appears as the son and the Messiah and the king who would crush the rebellious nations. Psalm 22, he's there. As a king crushed and murdered. Lama, Lama, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the end of the psalm, resurrected and worshiped by the nations. And he appears again in Psalm 45. Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, and others were Psalm 110. He is the great priest and king. And then Isaiah. Actually, before that, he's in Proverbs. Did you know that? The Messiah is in Proverbs chapter 30. He is the son of God who rules the ends of the earth. Imagine that. And Isaiah, he's everywhere. And Isaiah, he is Immanuel. God is with us, the one from a virgin, born from a virgin. Chapter 9, verse 6, he is there. The son to be born, the child who is given. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, the one who rules on the throne of David forever. Chapter 11, the one to come from David's line who will end the reign of terror in the world. And there he is in Isaiah 28, 16, 32, verse 1. 33, verse 18, chapter 42, 49, 50, 53, the suffering servant slain for the sins of men. He peers and Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous 
branch. A branch. What is a branch? This is a person. He will do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. And he appears in Ezekiel 34 and 37 as the servant David great shepherd who will shepherd the sheep in Jerusalem in a future kingdom. And then Daniel 7, the great son of man who will come to earth and be worshipped by the nations. And time would fail us if we were to look at the minor prophets who majorly cared about the Messiah. Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. He is the great shepherd, the eternal shepherd who will rule, who comes out of the city of Bethlehem. Zephaniah 3. Zechariah 9 and 12 and 14, he is the king pierced and bloody who comes again and rules the earth and not the least and last but not least, Malachi chapter 3, the great Lord who comes, the king who comes in his glory and appears at the temple. And there was more, lots and lots more, enough material to fill up a sermon two hours and 20 minutes long the most profound preaching you've ever heard in your life. And when it was all over, their eyes were finally opened and they said to one another, was not our heart burning within us? As he spoke the word to us on the way, was our heart not burning as he preached the word of God to us? Yes, it did burn. It did kindle in us unquenchable zeal to live for his glory. And beloved, that's all I want for you on Resurrection Sunday and every Sunday and every day of your life for that matter. That as you see the glory and beauty of the text from sacred scripture, that your hearts would burn would burn with love and zeal to live for his glory because, beloved, we are a resurrection people who worship a resurrected king, who have a resurrection hope. And what does that do but give us the courage to tell a fallen world the greatest news in the universe? He is risen Oh, that our hearts would burn. Oh, that our eyes could see that you would help us to be a people of the book, a people of resurrection hope, a people who doesn't care about the opinions or the accolades of the world, but you would make us a people bold and triumphant, not because of who we are or anything that we have done, but precisely in you, O Christ, who rose triumphant from the grave, and we are so grateful for that. We come to you and ask that you would grant to us that resurrection hope, that we might burn with zeal to live for your glory. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.